Hi, I'm JT White, author, digital native, and product person, obsessed with trying to find out how to make digital products and the people that make them the best we possibly can. This is Build for Better. My guest today is Bryony Cole. You may have seen her on the Today Show, Wired, Netflix's Follow This Series, on Vice, The Money Channel, The Morning Show, or on Channel 7. Maybe you were one of the over 1 million downloads of her Future of Sex podcast. Maybe you follow her on LinkedIn. She is one of the foremost experts and trusted advisors in the entire sex tech space. She is also someone that I had the luxury of seeing speak multiple times and have followed her career for quite some time. I am so excited to introduce you to her if you have not met her, and if you have met her, you know exactly how great this conversation will be. This is Bryony. And a brief disclaimer, this episode would be considered NSFW for adult content. All right, Bryony, so I've had a tendency with everyone I bring on to do this horrible thing where I start off by just gushing about how much I like the person, and you're the first episode where I'm doing it with great intention. So I've now decided I want to do this instead of doing it by accident. So welcome to the podcast. (laughs) And now I'm going to tell people why I fell in love with you. So I can't remember how long ago it was. I think it was somewhere between eight and 10 years. I don't actually remember. We were in New York and we were at a conference Mm -hmm. and you were speaking and I was the last person to speak. And the reason that you stuck out to me, aside from the fact that your topic was very interesting, I learned a lot, and you were just this like enigmatic speaker, was I remember thinking as you were up there, holy shit, I have to follow this woman. And I was so annoyed <laughs> in real time. I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, I don't want to have to go on stage after her. This is going to be so bad for me. <laughs> and so that's how I met you. And since then, I've watched everything that you produce because I just think you're incredibly oh, that's funny. So funny. And I learned a lot from you about an industry I knew very little about. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have you here. So thank uh, you. I love that. Look, it, it probably was me. It's the topic's a hard act to follow. So fair enough. But I'm glad that it's seared. <laughs> a good memory in your brain of me. It was so, it was so good. So it is, it is a good topic, but the topic today is not going to be on that because if anybody wants to hear you talk about sex tech, you have so much beautiful content already in the world. We're going to wind up touching on the subject because we have to part of your journey. Sure. But I think that the, the, what I'm more interested in is your journey and kind of like what it took you to get to a place where not only like what you had to think through and what you decided that brought you to where you are, but also like the things that you had to overcome to be as good and comfortable talking about mm. it and like kind of teaching people constantly, mm. like you're in a constant state of teaching. So let's start with like, if you were telling little Briny that this is what you were going to do when you grew up, like what would, like, how would that conversation go? Oh, it, it would go, um, hey, little Briny, did you know you're going to try all these different things, living in a treehouse, doing all girls snowboarding things, you know, reading the weather for the news, and eventually, eventually, you're going to try all these things and find out that actually you really love doing risky things and that what's more risky than talking about sex for you and you really enjoy it. So I think... I think the little girl was always worried that she had to be small, you know, um, from a very young age. That's what I felt. I think that's a pretty universal experience for at least for women. Yeah. Um, women identifying peeps is like, hey, be small in your body, be small in your voice, be, don't take up too much space. And so I, would, I just wish I'd taken up more space earlier. Like, this golden girl, golden child halo I was wearing till I was about 16. Like, ugh, I could have taken that off at six. Why didn't I? That's what I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, when I first saw you speak and much of the stuff that I've listened to since, what I, one of the things that I feel like you've mastered that I want to talk about today is this ability mm. to take up a lot of space and still be wildly thoughtful and approachable. Because mm. just to juxtaposition that as a guy, right? Specifically an American mm. from the Northeast, like an American male mm. raised by Irish Catholics in the Northeast. Like I was told to take up space by dominating, not by including. 
And it's a thing that I very often have to unfuck myself from. Like I have to walk myself back from that all the time. And I remember thinking like, this is a very powerful, very smart woman who's talking about a thing that's making at least a third of the room uncomfortable, if not more. Yeah. Everybody was just like, that was, that was great. <laughs> like, so how much of that is like a learned behavior and what did you do to, to get to that place? Or like how much of it is just sort of like inherently something that's in you? Um, I think, I think being, um, I think there's some qualities that like help with that, especially when you're talking about a taboo topic that I was born with. I think, you know, I got a leg up in the fact that I was in New York city with an Australian accent. I looked approachable, you know, I looked very average, sort of blonde young woman, Aussie accent talking about sex is already kind of, oh, okay, that's, that's sort of interesting. I'll listen to that without and then there was the deliberate things was like if you're going to talk about a topic like that don't be overtly sexual like that's just if you're a guy that's just creepy if you're you know a woman that's um that's going to take you know the imagination to different places it's just the way it is so i was very intentional in what i wore as well so you know i had a couple of things going for me but i would always you know if you see the talks i do i always have like a little scarf on and a you know, a, a little suit to, sort of thing to to project some sort of professionalism, especially when this was new for me. Now I'm like, let me rock a fucking tracksuit from Japan. Like now I feel <laughs> comfortable in my skin and I feel cut so comfortable with the topic. The repetition, the repetition of getting up and talking in front of an audience and and getting the beats that took years, but I think at the start, I, I very quickly realized, hey, you know what's gonna work for me is to become, um, yeah, neutral. Maybe put the golden girl halo on uh, once more um, and become neutral when you're talking about this. And also the, like, the sort of going to the gym, talking to people in terms of like, like the gym, the reps is what I'm talking about, not actually going to the gym, forget about that. but. To, to talk to people about sex and see their reactions and, and start to see it's, it's like, I guess it's like doing a comedy bit. You know, you start to go, yeah. Oh, that, that works. That that's disarming. Oh, when I talk, Oh, when I, when I bring in the technology aspect, people feel, they feel safer there. So there's a lot of like practice going on in talking about that. And the way I got my start talking about taboo topics was, in a podcast without you know showing my face and so that was really helpful at the start but then I was like oh no once you move to audience it completely changes and you you get to feel the room but you know it, it was it was something that I really enjoyed doing anyway I'd grown up with my parents who were cinematographers I'd been in front of the camera I'd done weather reports for the news in Australia so I had a sense of like how to project myself but then I was like well let's take this further and talk about topics that people aren't really comfortable with and let's see how we can do that so there was a little bit of strategy I think a little bit of rep and then a little bit of like yeah if I was a guy from the northeast in the United States I would have to try a bit harder to not come off creepy being like let's talk about sex robots you know like that's so there's a there's a combo effort there I reckon um, does that make sense? Oh, it makes no, it makes perfect. You have so you said so many things I want to react to. So the first thing that came to mind was so I love comedy, and I use it as a reference to building products all the time. In the sense that it's also the Ansel Adams quote, which I don't think was actually Ansel Adams, right? Talk about like the first ten thousand shots you ever take oh, yeah. will be like are, they're terrible. Like the first ten thousand photos are bad, and the rule in most with most stand-up comedians is like your first ten years suck. So like if you meet a comic, you're like, oh, I'm a stand-up comic. The first thing you do is how long have you been doing it? And if they're like mm. eight years, basically it's like, well, you're not a comic yet. Like mm. you, you're just not going to be good. Like other than like Eddie Murphy, no one's ever been good that yes. fast. Like Bill Burr's in his 30s. Like Seinfeld was in his 30s. Like it takes 10 years. So like I think about that with building stuff and companies a lot too. It just, it takes time. Like you're going to fuck that- up a ton. Do you know what? That makes so much sense because yesterday I was thinking about this in the context of the business I've now built around the industry I'm in. 
and I'm at eight years and I had exactly the same thought because always when I started, I was like, oh, when I'm 40, I'm no longer going to be talking about this. I'm going to be building another business. And I'm at eight years now. I'm like, you know what? I am two ways, two years away from this popping off. And I'm comfortable with that now, but I was always so uncomfortable by that year four because someone had told me in the beginning when I started, when I, you know, left corporate America and was like, I'm going to do this thing, this weird thing, because I'm in New York City and I've got the energy around me of doing weird shit. And someone said to me, I'll never forget, because it really kept me going for the initial. They said, if you stay in this for two years, if you keep podcasting for two years, you're going to stick in it, you're going to stay. But if you give up before two years, like everyone else, then you won't stay in it. And that kept me going for those first two years. But then four years in, I was like, uh, what the fuck, guys? I'm still here. Where's my where's my awards? Where's all, where's all the glory now? And so, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then last the last two years, you know, year six to eight, I, I really kind of bent out a bit. Because I was like, do I still want to do this thing? I'm, I'm, this is year six. And I'm kind of like, you know, it's a bit stale for me now where everyone that's new to the topic, I could see coming in and there's so much energy and these new founders and people in the space like, this is the best thing ever. And I'm like, oh, I remember when I was like in, you know, grade one, it feels like that, like new, new energy. And now um, this year, (laughs) January 25th, you know, it's early days, but I feel reinvigorated and it's about like, hey, you know, th- th- this is about mastery now. And this is about like doing the stuff that you really want to do. You try to bunch different shit for eight years in this niche. Now just do the stuff you're really good at. Um, anyway, so I, I really love that 10 years and that's like the 10,000 photos or the 10,000 hours, the 10,000, but I reckon yeah. decade is true. And like, if you'd told me at the start, uh, and have been like, oh, I guess I should just yeah go get the sex therapy degree instead. It's going to take the same <laughs> amount of time, man. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, so the, the word that you keep saying, and this is what I think is going to be like a centering theme of this entire conversation is the word comfortable. Mm-hmm. Because I think your position and the thing that I think I can, I've definitely watched you navigate from afar and in rooms but also just in general is this idea of both being comfortable with what you're talking about, understanding that it can make people uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and then making them comfortable too. Mm -hmm. And if you strip away sex as a topic, but just think about like the human condition Mm -hmm. and make it about my world, like often very, whether it's with investors or with like clients or whatever, like I have to, I have to be comfortable with what I'm saying. I have to make them no longer uncomfortable with that I'm right. Mm-hmm. Like it's a real skill that takes time. So when you think about the very early days versus the reinvigorated Briny that exists yeah. now, what made you uncomfortable back then versus what makes you uncomfortable now? If anything, maybe you don't feel yeah. discomfortable. Well, the uncomfortability in the start was always the imposter syndrome, which, you know, oh. the term gets pandied around. But I think it's like, you know, I, I so, just think, what is, what is that? But, yeah, I felt so underqualified to talk about this topic and actually think it served me really well because in terms of making people comfortable, my strat was listen, just listen. Be a sponge for stories ask all the questions, you know, and that was how really I built my expertise was, well, I'm going to platform these other amazing people that I meet, and you know, whether that was organizing these sex tech dinners or having them on the podcast. Like for me, it was all about listening and asking questions and then, you know, giving them value back, whatever that meant, like, Hey, have you met this person? Whatever that was. Um, but I think that served me really well in the early days, A, because I learned so much because I was just like I'm just going to sponge up all of this and I go to these um, amazing conferences like I I may have you may have heard about this before sexual attitude readjustment um, which is like four days of just learning with sex therapists about different proclivities and, and and treatments that they do but that that really helped me now because after years of practice I I now know 
yeah, I can go through those three levels you talked about, like comfortability with talking about the topic, comfortable, like making people comfortable. I'm making, maybe you said making people comfortable to sharing, but those three levels. And now there's the fourth level because now what happens is I've got the beats, right? Of like, here's what I'm going to talk about. Here's the things I know how people are going to react. You know, there's a bit of a um, practiced in the craft type feeling and I know people's reactions and I can feel that. But now the fourth level is, okay, people are way too comfortable. Like I'm talking about this, I come off the stage and then I'm stuck for four hours because someone's sharing their traumas with me. They, you know, they think I'm a therapist. Or so oh. then the, the thing is, okay, now what you need to practice is the boundary. Like we can't get too comfortable here. Or where can I, where can I send you essentially? Do, oh, you need a therapist because I'm not one, but I've got a good one for you. And that conversation can end in 10 minutes instead of four hours. And that's something I had to learn and now very quick with whether that is deal flow whether that is you know audience all that sort of stuff but that wasn't something I was comfortable in at the start because I was like well I know nothing so I have to listen to everyone right so this is a I I was not planning on this question at all but like how much of this impacts your personal life because that like the ability to set boundaries like that like does that translate to your personal world or do you like because that's a really hard fucking trait man like being able to actually like successfully set a boundary in real time with strangers is probably easier than doing it with like your mom but like still like setting boundaries like being comfortable getting uncomfortable and setting an immediate boundary feels really healthy (laughs) yeah i'm shit i said it in my personal relationship of course (laughs) It's completely different. Briny shows up there. Um, right, perfect. That's what I want to hear. I mean, I could talk about sex stuff. Like that, that feels safe. But the, yeah, setting boundaries with people that you love. Oof, you know, that's, that's, I'm still, I'm still in therapy. Like I'm still in grade one for yeah. that. Um, but no, like I think it's, I, I, I do think um, relational intelligence can, you can pick up tips, but. I think that's probably also why I got into this topic is because I just, I was so, you know, stumbling around in the dark in my personal life. And, you know, they always say you do the work that, you know, you really want to do on yourself or at least psychologists, you know, deal with their own trauma by becoming psychs. Um, I think a part of that probably is is why I do the work I do. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went to school for psychology, so like. Get oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, I enrolled in psych in uni, and I was like, "This is this is too much like science. It's like they need some numbers oh, and math things." I'm out. I, I mean, I hit every tick. It's like it was just me and the DSM four. I'm like, got it. I got this one. <laughs> yeah. I got, oh boy, I got a lot of this one. I mean, just went straight down the list. <sighs> so I think one of the things I'm interested in talking about with like you know again being uncomfortable and then moving into comfort is. How did you, how did you tell your story to people when you were starting? Because like one of the things that I do again, I'm not trying to like mm-hmm. just constantly do here, but like you were early doors for this, mm-hmm. right? So like now, I do think it's interesting that like you're the curve of like now. There's all these people that are like, listen, in the mm-hmm. past like four years, the yeah. world has gotten better about understanding that sex happens and not being weird about it. Yeah, but you lived in a world where it was like super early doors, so you had to like, what was like how I don't know how you I mean how did you tell people what you did? How did you get past that? Like I don't know, like that weird ick that might have happened because it was like, oh man, I got to explain to these fucking people what I do. Yeah, well sometimes they'd be like, I'm an accountant, you know, and (laughs) let's go around the circle and say what we do. But no, I think in the early days again, like the reps, the repetition was really good and speaking one-on-one and practicing that. And what I noticed happily pretty early on was speaking about this, I was, yeah, oh, no, people are going to get the egg. In fact, people were really excited and really kind of disarmed by the fact that I was like, oh, yeah, I've you know, got this podcast, Future of Sex, or I'm really interested in sex tech. And there was that sort of lean in, and oh, tell me more. And and doing that a number of times was like, yeah, sure. There, there was definitely moments where people would 
you know, left the room, all the, you know, all the things you can imagine, but far outweighing that was people were actually receptive and excited. And by me speaking about it, it gave them permission to talk about sex in a way, you know, I might be speaking about it in a broad brush strokes or landscapes or a way that felt a little bit more, let's say, palatable in terms of like, I'm not talking about raw fucking anyway we could go there but i'm not talking about like the physical raw act i'm talking about hey this is this device for painful sex and then you know 40 minutes later they're like by the way i, I think i'm really painful sex and blah, blah. so it just opens up a, a really special place for people which is is that's when it gets into managing it and that's when I got kind of a bit tired of it really was I, I kind of knew the way that people would react was receptive and then like overly comfortable yeah. um but yeah in the beginning just lots of practice and the again your question about like well doing this with strangers or doing this with personal people so doing this with strangers so much easier I had so much fear about coming out on the internet with all this stuff in fact much more easier than receiving a call from my mum who was like Brian, i've listened to your podcast what are you are you working on the streets now you know like from like <laughs> conservative commonwealth australia just like so concerned how did how did my daughter go from microsoft to this and so right. those conversations were so much harder and took years for my parents to get comfortable with that and to to feel okay this is what our daughter does to being able to even tell other people you know that was like there was so much shame personal shame in this topic for me that um that was like that was the work more than you know it, it kind of felt easier to get the 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 hits from from strangers or not and then I didn't have to hold on to it but rejection from my personal family, oh, the worst. Yeah, it's it's the so one of my least favorite words for obvious reasons is shame. Like it's just like accountability without shame is it's actually a thing that I wrote forever ago that I don't know what I did with it, but it's somewhere. But like it's a, I've seen people do that really well, and like it's so weird to be held accountable with shame because then it's mm -hmm. like it just feels like shit and it's yeah. not helpful. Yeah. And it's a, it's also a really weird way to like manage a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Like shame is like such a, it's so degradatory. It doesn't do anything positive for either Agreed. side, Agreed. which is so brutal mm -hmm. and your world in particular, like I'm actually like, I mean, I'm, I assume you have to feel pretty good about like the quasi renaissance of people now opening up about sexuality and having conversations oh, yeah. more openly. Like it's, it's good for business for you. Right? Yeah. Like yeah and like, i mean like, what's great is like there's so many people with different ideas about what sex is or what sexuality is now and that that's that's interesting to me I, like like let's have different ideas and different conversations about it so yeah it is it's exciting of course we still have a ways to go but yeah i feel i feel like this is this is the time where in my industry you can find like the most interesting people on the planet and they're doing like super niche things where that might be, I don't know, sex education in rural areas or something with aging population, whatever it is, it's so niche. And the, the niche you get in sexuality and identity, the kind of more interesting it is. And they're typically not, you know, founder bros based in New York city or founder chicks or whatever, you know? And I really like that because it kind of paints a really interesting, more global view of, the world and like who we are in the world and so for me i love i love where we're at right now and yes we've got more work to do but for sure it's every day i'm i feel like there's more interesting products and services and stuff to find out and that it's not about it's not about the technology it's always about like the sexuality and the way we move in the world and the people behind it so yeah excited yeah it's fascinating I find, well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. I, I'm fascinated by it specifically when I think about like how products get made, because that's always going to be my slant because I build products for a yep. I had shame in being a startup person because for a long time that like, you know, was like, there was a lot of startup bros and it was shitty. It still is, mm -hmm. by the way. A lot of mm -hmm. um, but now I think about like, 
the the access to information and data and willingness to share those things and how quickly it can accelerate an entire industry, right? And I think your industry, because I would say like just the human anatomy is at a different spot than it's ever been. Because if you think about how people work out and how people talk and think about sex and how people talk and think about therapy and like now we're doing all this cool, you know, micro gut biome and brain connectivities. Like there's all these cool things that are happening all of which is leading to, I actually went to school specifically for evolutionary psychology. So I'm very tied into like the reason we exist. Sex is a big part. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's a really, really Great big production. part. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of wired in there pretty hard. So it's really interesting to think that now there's like, you're at this moment where technology is at a, I mean, at a rampant pace and doing, mm-hmm. I mean, I, a co-founder of an AI startup. I mean, there's a shit ton of tech out there for that for stuff. And then also like the willingness and opportunity to have a conversation about it. Like how do you approach marrying those things together for people to, to make things that are good? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think a lot of the people that are making stuff in this space, um, they typically don't have, access to capital unless they're a porn company and let's just put the porn stuff away for a second and people that just make a conscious decision to be in sex tech there it's coming from a place where they have had a meaningful experience they they have to because it's so hard because you're st- even though it's 2024 you're still up against the stigma you're still up against you know censorship lack of access to banks and email providers and things that normal, you know, founders and small businesses get. So the experience to, as a founder, to to have the will to create something in this space is born out of either an epiphany, like I just, you know, fell off the bed because I had this leg shattering orgasm, you know, whatever. Laura DiCarlo talks about that in her, how she started her vibrator company. Um, or it's it's born out of a trauma. So there's either an epiphany or a trauma, a terrible experience, or, you know, Emily Sal talks about painful sex and she thought she was the only one and she put donuts on her boyfriend's dick to reduce the depth of penetration and then, you know, the donut was born and seven years later it's a really successful product. But there, there is so, much, so many barriers to being a founder in this space that you really, you, yeah, the intention of like good, and we could argue about ethically what is good, what's not good, what's normal, what is, you know, especially in sexuality. I think people have a lot of opinions that are totally different about where those boundaries are. But that is what I've seen from over the years is people get into this industry because it's really meaningful for them. You know, this is not a quick, you know, I'm going to create a, plants subscription business and you know follow the rules or the textbooks or the econ thing no so so that there's just so much of yourself that goes into being in this because it's so like i guess high risk in a way yeah it's really that's actually super interesting because i think when i think of good right like anything to me any product that solves a problem without creating more problems than it solves mm-hmm. is kind of like the most succinct way that I've ever been able to put that, right? So if you can solve something without creating more problems because of the thing you solve, then it's a good product, right? No matter how big or small, hardware, yep. software, it doesn't matter. And so, but there is an interesting thing that I, I, you know, again, I have not thought of and I don't work specifically in your space, but like when you put your face on a product in your world, there are assumptions made about you instantly. Mm-hmm. Like, instantly. so that's like, how do you coach people around that or th- not around it? How do you coach people through it? Yeah. Like how do you, how do you get people comfortable with owning this? Cause I mean, listen, sex tech, one thing that I learned from you a very long time ago is that like everybody goes to robots because mm-hmm. we're jobs and we have TVs and that's what we, <laughs> that's what we think yeah. about. Technology, like, robot, sex. Yeah. Like the media, you know? media. Yeah. But it's so much bigger than that, right? I mean, like it can be any number of like the physical product world is obviously huge for mm-hmm. for that for space, um, but also just like you know apps to get home safely because of sexual sure. assault and stuff like. That. 
all these other there's all these other angles that people take and if your face or name is attached to that people are going to make assumptions about why you made it so how do you coach people to yeah. own that and still set that boundary that you talked about earlier mm-hmm. where you they let people in enough to understand that it's meaningful, but not enough that they have to actually share or relive their pain. Mm, yep, it's a, such a great question. It comes up so often in the school program I run for founders around this. And the first thing is that you really have to make a choice because I don't, I don't subscribe to the fact that you always have to be front and center and you know found a story for your product. I think some people there's just like for safety reasons, for a whole host of reasons, you don't need to do that. If you do that though, if you do become the face of your company and product, it's enormously powerful in the sex space, particularly because it's there's telling your story, there's a connection there. And we know this from like any other industry, as you know, like with founders, a personal story, it drives such a point of connection with your yeah. customers. And so I think if, so first you need to make a choice. Am I going to be the face or not? Do I have a comfortability with that? Because it comes with risk. What's the risk? Okay, let's assess the risk. Well, people are immediately going to make assumptions about you. You're probably going to receive a number of messages or, you know, you can call it hate mail, trolling. And that is just like, that comes with part of the job. So you need to be aware that that, that's like, there's no escaping that once you're in this industry, because people have very strong opinions about it. It doesn't matter if you're inside America or outside, particularly outside, you know, and and everywhere they'll find you, they'll find your email, they'll get on your LinkedIn. You'll get that. This is why I stopped responding or looking in my DMS on Instagram, because, you know, it's just, you know, you can try and fight it. And there's specific ways if you're part of a company and you can't like stop looking at it. You know, I always I always advocate for the human thing of like if they're up in there, just send them a voice note, let them know you, that you're human. But there's a fatigue yeah. that comes with that. So I think there's a there's a the first fork in the road is am I comfortable with doing this? Am I ready yet? If you're not ready, no worries. But if you do, it's gonna be your superpower. And yes, you are going to have to relive telling that story over and over and over again for customers, for investors, for media, things. And then suddenly, you hopefully, you just become really comfortable with the story. You can na- nail the narrative down to a specific sort of paragraph. And my friend Polly, she runs um, Unbound, which is another sex, it's a rebellious women's sex toy brand out of New York. And she started that um, out of having colon cancer when she was 21 and having her ovaries removed, all this sort of thing, and, and walking into a sex toy store and having a terrible experience. Now, the amount of times she's had to tell that story over and over and over again, um, and we talk about it a lot, they're like, oh, are we completely desensitized? And then there'll be one interview. It's usually with a journalist or someone else, and they ask that question, and boom, there you go, you're in tears again. You know, And that's, that's sort of like you're signing up for doing that, and that's, in a weird way, part of the healing, part of this, part of the reason you got into this. So there's only so much you can coach someone through it to prepare them. But the other part is developing the resilience along the way and the coping things of like, I'm not looking at my DMs or I'm outsourcing that to my assistant or my content person or where are you going to protect yourself so that when you need to tell those stories, maybe it's to the New York Times, then you've got the story and you can access it in a way that doesn't fall flat. Like, here's my five rehearsed sentences. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, it does. Well, it's, it absolutely does. One of the things that I always tell founders in general, right, is, is so much of your journey is about ownership, right? Like you have to own the idea, you have to own the mistakes, you have to own everything, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's a lot easier when it's less personal. like it's really easy to own shit when you're kind of like well i had an idea because me and my buddy like tennis and it's like who gives a shit versus like if you're actually doing stuff in spaces that are very specifically tied to a personal thing that you're doing right like that ownership method is a thing that you kind of have to you got to find a place where like to, to your point where you're comfortable right which is like how much of this narrative has to be out there and how much of it are you comfortable sharing because whatever you share is your like you got to own the shit out of it now yes yes 
can't back off it. It's like if it's personal, you gotta, that's your shit. <laughs> and you can own that story. Like you're, you're controlling the story you tell. So, I mean, my story about how I got into this has shifted multiple times over the years. I've finessed it, essentially, you know, of like, am I going to share, you know, that I was interviewing these people about VR and, you know, some of that now I'm like, no, like this is, these are the core reasons. I felt small when I was young, you know. So you kind of, again, through, through practice, but you do, you own, you own the story. And I think people feel like, well, I've got to be completely like, a hundred percent honest and tell all the details no no like what bullet points do you want to share and let's work around that first and then you start to you know go oh i feel i feel more comfortable with, with this part of the story it's not it's not making up a story but in this, it kind of is you know it's like making sense of it um for an audience isn't that what we're always doing anyway well, that's one, one of my favorite quotes that I heard literally forever ago from a guy named Paul Iannon, who I don't even know if he's alive, but he said to me, he said, it's the myth, not the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that has stuck with me forever, right? Because, and it's, it's, it's just the myth, not the truth, right? So it's like, as my story goes about like, I, I've catched myself now, like the company I sold when I was 16. I don't know what happened anymore. I know the story I tell. <laughs> I know the story cold. Like I can yeah. do it cold and yeah. it's good. Yeah. I don't know if that's actually what happened. I was yeah. 16 to five years old. <laughs> I have exactly. no idea. How exactly. There was lawyers and shit. I missed most of that conversation. <laughs> but I know how I tell it because that's my truth now. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. And, and getting comfortable with that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So one question, I, I don't ever write questions down in advance of these, which it makes me a terrible interviewer, by the way. I'm having fun. But the one thing that I did want to talk to you about very specifically is what do you think, I don't, I don't know what to call it, big corporate or fucking, I don't know, the overlords. Like, what do you think big tech could learn from your industry? Hmm. I think, I think it's really got to be really, I hate to use the word creative, but scrappy or whatever. I think I think that's that's part of it because it's so hard to get big in this industry. It's so hard to to even access social media. So there's so many like guerrilla creative, you know, tactics with no money that I think are really interesting um, for bigger corporates for sure. I think there's a lot of creativity and innovation in doing stuff when you have such heavy constraints around the industry. Um, and I also think, yeah, I think the vulnerability of the people behind these products is pretty amazing. Like, I think that's to be, to be vulnerable in a way that resonates with other people. You know, I think that's kind of hard when you're in big, bigger companies, right? Yeah. I feel like it shouldn't be though. <laughs> like that's one of those mm-hmm. things that I feel like I could learn because like, you know, the, the truth is, is behind all of these big things these huge technical companies that you that you work with every day and have to live with every day is there's just people they're just random they're just some dude some yeah. lady some person doing yeah. their best on a tuesday trying yeah. to get shit done the one thing that i love about your industry as a product person and I, there's no question I, I maybe i'm just talking at you for this for a second but yeah yeah I tell me love how user centric you have to be to be good in your space same old. like you cannot, and I've, I've worked with two companies that are either directly in your space or, or tangentially surrounding it. And one that I'm working with right now with a friend, which is a sort of like an idea that we've been kicking around. And you can't, it's like the one industry because it is so, at least in certain aspects, it is so fucking directly physical and like human that there is no assumption that can be made without vigorous testing of people mm. who actually shit to use your product which isn't true in the digital landscape in a lot of ways. It's not true in a lot of other, in, in other places where you can kind of operate on gut and instinct and data. And it's like, you can have all the data in the world, specifically when it comes to a lot of the stuff in the female anatomy, and you will be wrong. And there are, there's a whole litany of products that have proved that over time. Yeah. And so the thing that I always look to in, in the sex space specifically is like, how close to the user you actually have to be to not fuck that up. 
<laughs> yes, that's so good. I mean, pleasure is so personal. Like, and yeah. that's what I think that's a real learning for people as well that personally about their sex, like their sex life. Pleasure is, you know, it's like a fingerprint. It's so unique to every single, let's say, user or human. Our pleasure yeah. and our anatomy, as you know. So uh, pleasure is so interesting because it's, yes, it's physical and it's to do with your anatomy, but it's also psychological. It's emotional, it's intellectual, and it's spiritual. And so how do you, like, take those four quadrants and make products that make people orgasm? Amazing. So I think yeah, that's, that's yeah. a spot-on insight. It's, it's, I just, it's something that I've like was thinking about relatively recently because like, you know, we, the, the data side of, of all products is like, it's really important. And listen, we didn't used to have data, so you had to operate on instinct. But like when, when I think about the, again, like evolutionary psychology, the brain, like so much of when you're designing things has to do with how the brain is going to actually react to that. Now, Mm -hmm. whether it's a physical or visual stimulus, it actually doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. Something is happening that's causing your brain to do a thing that releases either dopamine or serotonin or cortisol spikes, like whatever's happening is happening to you physically. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. being able to like really dial in on all of the little mechanics that make a difference, things like color choices and, you know, size and shape and feel and texture and all those things, your eyes feel the same thing as your body does. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're mm-hmm. taking all that in, it's all input. So I, I think there's a lot that we can learn. And I also think there's probably a lot that your space can probably still learn as mm-hmm. we get better with like rapid prototyping and stuff like that to be able to like really dial in more personalized content, question mark? I don't know what to call it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent on all levels. I mean, I did this really fun thing during COVID. They had, um, the, I was a judge on the world submit a sex toy competition, right? And the fun, there's like, hundreds and hundreds of people submitting designs and we're talking about sex toys but of course like sex tech encompasses it beyond toys but for the purposes of this i thought it was so interesting you know we had 70 finalists and just the diversity of products and thought and of course because it's coming again this is an industry that is so personal that someone's like you know what i'm not getting off like this so why don't i you know use this or like i need this sort of blanket or this thing and what came out was like whoa like everyone's not only everyone's like experiences are different of like what they like and their preferences but the body types which we kind of we're going through this now with like the wellness and the body positive movement but like genitals so different and like how do you make a product for masses of different you know dicks or vaginas or fingerprints basically like how do you make something that can can adapt to to other people's body types and still be pleasurable and for the longest time and this is sort of why the industry is so interesting because it's also craft like breaking through these myths that we all have about sex about like you know, genitals should look like this and this, or and that sex toys should replicate genitals because that, you know, that's a, what we do, P and V. And so I always think that, that that's so interesting. Like that project was so fascinating to me and really opened my eyes up to like truly the diversity and the passion people have for getting off, but also translating that to like, okay, so, you know, Love Honey Group or whatever, how are you going to commercialise this this product then? How are you going to make this for not just one person, but for tens of thousands of people and sell it and, and can you? And will that work for different body types? So I think there's so there's so much, you know, and it doesn't look like genitals. It looks like a weird alien blanket, you know. What? Right. So there's so much breaking through those myths about what sex should be, what is, you know, quote, unquote, normal. What is, you know, we, my favourite quote is like, normal's a setting on a washing machine. It's not anything yeah. to do with sex. You're like, this is, there's no sex that's normal. Um, but I love it for that part. And so I think you're right. Like, there's so much more to be done in this space. Like, we're just, we're just beginning to see what different products and services could look like that, you know, are a bit outside the norm. Sure, we've got pastel colours everywhere. We call it purple washing. You know, every freaking dildo is purple or pastel at the moment 
But what's beyond that? Because that's what's exciting to me. Okay, we've stopped replicating, you know, dildos that look like dicks. Now we've gone, oh, we can put them on our bedside tables or in museums and they'll look really interesting in their annual office. But what's beyond that? Like that's that's exciting to me. Once we've moved beyond that as like the, the cultural consciousness has gotten comfortable with, okay, we masturbate or we have sex. Like, okay, yeah. it doesn't have to look like this. Okay, oh, it looks kind of pretty. Oh, but what what's what's beyond that? And that's where I think technology is going to get really interesting when it crosses with our sexuality. Yeah, it's fat. for some reason, all I could think of with like how you shape those things is it's the Henry Ford quote. If I ask my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Like, it's just, it's like, oh, I need this, so I must need this. It's like, you don't need that. But it's like, I think I do. It's like, you don't actually, it's not what yeah. you need. But I think that it's, 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 it's interesting, right? Like I work in the video space specifically. And like, you know, people who aren't close to video creation have no idea what the porn industry did for video tech. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. they had smart because they couldn't get banking mm -hmm. they couldn't get mm -hmm. funding so they had mm -hmm. to get like they had to get tricky about stuff and they had to like so much of the streaming services and so much of storage and all that stuff that we have today is very specifically because of yep. like three companies that were making porn <laughs> absolutely yeah we have the, a lot of the innovation in that space and that's where again when we look to the future i think it's interesting to see it's also scary to see um, what's been created around AI, probably your industry you know more about and and that intersection and um, the rabbit hole we're, we're going down when it comes to sex and that stuff. And it is the Wild West, but they, they, they also have the capital to play with like creating fully AI characters for OnlyFans girls and things like that. But like, you know, the founder that I see at Sex Tech School, you know, is still putting donuts on someone's penis and making a rubber prototype. Like there's, you know, there's a spectrum, but I think with the more complex and sophisticated technologies, it's, it's exciting to see. Okay. And it's, and it's, it's also a bit dystopian to go, okay, well, what's, what, what is going to be broken through thanks to the porn industry and hit mainstream application and use cases. Um, just like we saw with video streaming, payment processes, the internet, um, yeah. Watch this space. Yeah. It's so, well, it's so the, the, the one thing I do, I mean, working, you know, in the AI space literally every day for years now, but the idea that, first of all, there's a very different, the physical and the digital realm are two very different places, right? And, and so much of what your industry does, it, I mean, there's a lot of digital realm too, but like a lot of it really is in the physical realm mm -hmm. and where AI and machines are interesting as robots, not as robots to have sex with, but robots to rapidly produce better and more variant products is very good for the physical world. Like that's not a bad thing because to your point mm -hmm. earlier, like everybody is literally different. So if there's a way to get more products created faster and better. Customized, yep it's really good. Like that could actually be really, really good for the space, mm -hmm. right? The digital space is the digital realm and AI is, is, is very much wild Westy right now. Yeah. And, and specifically, I think in your world, when it comes to the ability for people to create imagery and or videos at the literally like this, yep. um, in our platform, we're very, very careful about prompting mm -hmm. a negative prompting to make sure that we're very specific about what can and can't get produced because the internet's for porn. So people yeah. try stuff all the time. <laughs> all the time. And like, I, you know, I'm even seeing it on Instagram at the moment with like Taylor Swift. I don't know if you've seen these images that are like, you know, AI generated with like getting oh, whatever railed by, I don't know, footy team and thing. And I'm like, how are they even getting, they're on Instagram now. So yeah. it's super interesting. And you know, part of the sex tech space is always around sex education. And five years ago, we were talking about, um, you know, kids using Facebook or doing losing their FaceTime virginity. And there was all this thing of like, oh, sex education needs to evolve to talk about revenge porn and predators online. Yeah. And now, you know, you can see so, so easily in the future, yes, we're going to need to talk about like, you know, well, we still say like porn is like the McDonald's of sex. Like we need to tell kids like, hey, this is not the real thing. Like this is the trick, you know. Um, but but in the future with AI and with characters and we're already seeing with like blush and repl replica and blush as the dating app 
made from the same company where you're dating fully AI characters and the use of AI in therapy, like the emotional side of sex and intellectual, let's call it intimacy, um, that is also going to need an upgrade because we're seeing people forming these bonds with the technology now. And that's always been our fear. Oh my God, we're gonna, I'm going to be replaced. You know, my boyfriend's going to replace me with this sex robot or this fully, you know, AI girlfriend. And so I think, uh, I think in the future, when I think about sex tech and this underlying thing that we bang on about in sex tech is sex education. Um, we're going to need to have education around human to AI relationships in an intimate level as well. And the kids, but also for adults about, okay, what does this mean? And what, what does a healthy relationship look like there? Because, um, they're happening already. As, I mean, as somebody who works in the video AI space and is the father of daughters, it just, to me, it all comes back to that boundary conversation. Like there needs to be like specifically companies like mine and everybody else in the AI space, like we need to be very loudly speaking about where the lines are drawn mm. for now. Because we do understand what happens to brains. Like we can, we live in an age where we know what's happening. We can see yeah. what happens. We see how it, re like how the human brain reacts to this stuff. And so I do think it's incumbent on a lot of the AI people in the world to raise their hands and go, hey, we're going to be good about this and we're going to like share what we know and we're going to try to put some boundaries in place. People are going to break it. That's how the world works. It's fine. But in, in general, I think working in tandem with science and with education and trying to like align those things is like, I think paramount to AI being the kind of successful we want it to be as opposed to the dystopian yeah. place that not hard to imagine it getting if we don't watch it. Can I ask, do you see that happening anytime soon or is that happening for people that aren't in the space as deeply as you? Is there like, you know, a movement there around some sort of ethical committee where people are putting their hands up? Yeah, there's definitely, a, there, there's a very strong movement. I think with, um, you know, the, the hard thing is, the answer is yes, there is. There, there's a lot of people really important people in this space, really talented people in this space who are having very, very serious ethical conversations on a regular basis about how do we proceed intelligently. I think the thing that I don't have an answer to and I haven't seen that I, I love yet is that right now it's very, um, a lot of the conversation that matters with the people that matter is economic based and not human based. And so it's about shareholders and it's about jobs and it's about job elimination and it's about all that stuff, which is also a consideration set, by the way. Like, I think that's also very important, but I, I do think I'm not seeing as much of the humanity side as I think there needs to be. Um, but I also think that like, you know, listen, it's early, it's early days. Like we're still really, really, this is a nascent technology. We don't fully understand entirely how or where we can shape it yet. So I think we just need to be mindful of the fact that like it's incumbent on everybody in this space to be as ethical and, and cool about this as possible. And when it's like, if the thing that I have told my friends in the space as we talk about it is like, if it's, if you think about, does it feel weird? The answer is yes. Mm. If it enters your mind, we're like, should I be worried about this right now until we know more? That's, that's the answer is mm. yes. It, Cross your brain that you thought it might be crossing the line. The answer is you already crossed the line. Mm. And it's just because we don't know enough yet. We just don't know enough yet. But this is where I think coordination is going to be paramount, right? Like we need to be mm. talking to you and we need to be talking to a lot of nerd. Like I'm very big in the neurospace. Like we have to be talking to neurologists about how these things actually connect and at what point in what brains in what, because it matters like how old. Like it's, it's an amazing accelerant. Like AI, I truly believe is the accelerant of the future. I think it's going to be the thing that makes us build better, faster, stronger things. Mm -hmm. But we believe in human in the loop. Like it's about making us better. It's not about making it better. Mm. And that's the line that I think we have to figure out. And it could be yeah. a chasm if we're careful. <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, like it's, it's funny because if I close my eyes, you could, you really could also be talking about sex tech because it all has felt for the longest time like there should be a sex tech ethics committee because again it is about the the technology in this space is it's really about making us better it's about the humans it's it's about right. the technology as a tool that allows us to do a thing rather than 
the tool taking over. So uh, really, I'm really excited to hear that. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah we need to take some notes for the, the sex tech well, listen, circle. You might, it's you under might, this umbrella. You might get there first. You might get there well, first. <laughs> I think there's a few heavy hitters helping helping in AI that, yeah, we need that in sex tech. But it's all related, right? right? It's all under the umbrella. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, all of this stuff winds up being, I mean, listen, the, the one thing that I like, the one of the things I like the most about your space is that you just aren't lying about what the point is. Yeah. Right? Like, that's, that's great because, like, this is, this is for pleasure. And it's like, everybody else is like, ours is a utility. It's like, no, the fuck it's not. Everything that we build is to make things pleasurable and easier for us. Right? You guys are just the most honest about it. The rest of us are yeah. like, it's it's an efficiency play. It's like, nah, dude, it's pleasure. <laughs> like, because you're lazy. It's all, it's all so you can lie down. Yeah. Oh my God. All right. I could talk to you forever, but we have to wrap. So I want to get to the final question. So these are sponsored, not sponsored by anybody, but they're um, in lieu of Bernard Pivot, who wrote them. And then James Lipton made a famous thing for Inside the Actor Studio where he asked the nine questions you need to know about everybody. I've amended them a little bit for business concepts. Um, what's a quote or a concept that you love? Oh. Oh, damn, I should have I should have done some research on this, but like I don't I don't love the Nike slogan "Just Do It," but I do <laughs> I do I do really like this, and this is especially in relation to my own journey is just going ahead and doing it, but like you know, jumping into the cringe pool, you know, just you just got to go do it. So yeah, Nike, just do it. It works. That is totally cringe. Works. So I you know, tick tick, double tick. <laughs> uh what's a quote or a concept that you dislike <laughs> dream believe succeed <laughs> not any of those things <laughs> any eat pray love i don't know anything that you, any of those wooden things you can stick on yeah, your wall any any instagram or like marshall's home goods on the wall absolutely get it wall. out of here burn it down put it in a bonfire see you later uh what's a job other than your own that you would love to have i think a therapist i think i would really like to do that mm. yeah, that's with boundaries what's a, job, what's a job other than your own you would never want accountant perfect great answer <laughs> <laughs> uh what turns you on spiritually creatively or emotionally Oh, just other people's stories. I just, yeah, you know, that's that's what I love doing. It what excites me is, you know, I like to be in your position. I like to be hearing about other people's stories. It's such a turn on. Yeah, it's that's why I do this. Uh, mm. What turns you off spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? Turns me off. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I mean, the first thing that came to mind, let's just roll with that because I feel like I'm giving you the shortest answers, but uh, anyone that doesn't like dogs. That's a great answer. That's mm. the right answer. I, I would yeah. stand behind that answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't trust uh, what's a product? What's a product that you absolutely love? Mm. I mean, we're, we're talking about sex tech, so I feel like I should just go with the sex tech recommendations here. And the, the womanizer air pleasure technology for people with vaginas, people with vulvas is amazing. I stand behind that a hundred percent, not sponsored, but I think you can't like, you can't go wrong with that one. Great answer. I mean, I assume it's a great answer. I'll, I'll never know. Yeah. You'll never uh, know so, until <laughs> tech advances. <laughs> uh, what's a product you wish was better or have strong feelings about? Hmm. Condoms. Ooh, great answer. Wouldn't have thought of that one. Obviously not my space. All right. Um, and then if you could solve any one problem through technology, what would it be? Hmm. Any one problem? Yeah. Oh, 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 I'm so curious what other people have said. I mean, for me, just having gone through such a mental health struggle last year, I think it's kind of a personal but a big problem. And I know technology is tackling this, but I think like depression and anxiety and helping people understand their mental health 
if there was something that really worked. It's kind of like if you could make wave a magic wand, you know. I think um, I'm so curious how to help people move through that in a better way. I'm not sure if tech is the answer, to be honest. Yeah, that's so people have brought that up. The one that I always default to is education. Mm-hmm. Um, because my evolutionary psychology and psychology time spent is I don't actually think we can solve that with tech. Mm-hmm. Mental health would be my answer, but I honestly think it's such an interpersonal thing yeah. that I think tech can be an assistant. I don't think it can solve the problem. Yes, yes. It's kind of like that. I was just waving a magic wand, really, wasn't I? I mean, I love your answer, and I, I think it's the right one for sure because mm. it's definitely is affecting, I think we're more aware of how affecting the world it is than ever before, which is very Yeah, exciting. yeah. Um, listen, I am very excited that you agreed to do this. I just adore you and I can talk to you oh. forever. Thank you. You're the best. Back at ya. Back at ya. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll do it again soon.